Welcome to my podcast. I'm sitting in the morning room in the castle and my guest today is a wonderful person, Laura Tobin, meteorologist, so we can talk about the weather. She was a physicist. My God, that has me in such awe. And she's just written an amazing book about everyday ways that we can save the planet. Thank you, Laura. Welcome to Highclere Castle. It's not your first time here, here is either. No, I think I've been here about four times. So I am the weather presenter on Good Morning Britain every single morning on national telly, telling people the thing they want to know the most, the most talked about topic in the UK, the weather. And we've been here, I think, for when a movie was launched, for I think probably the beginning of the last series and then the end of the last series. I've been here in costume, in car, <laughs> Christmas specials. So yeah, it, it felt like, I know it's not my home, but it felt home. like coming home when I drove up the drive. So yeah, it's so nice to be back. Well, it's lovely, lovely to welcome you. And I first of all want to say I've really enjoyed your book. Thank you. Because it's it's simple. It's simple to read, to dip into, to understand. And it's, you know, how we can save this extraordinarily beautiful planet, mm. this beautiful world, what we're doing to it, why we must stop, and the everyday ways that every single one of us can do, what we can change about ourselves, will be how we can save the planet for the future. I think it's a really fun book. So again, it was Everyday Ways to Save the Planet. 200 plus, in fact. It was going to be called 101 Ways to Save the Planet, and then it was 120, and then 150, and 180, and I said to the publishers, we need a new name. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's 200 plus ideas, yeah. <laughs> but I'm in August. You actually um, studied at university at Reading, which is not so very far from Highclere. It's probably about 20 miles east of here. It's a great university, and that's where you studied physics, if I'm right, yes. and meteorology. Yeah, physics and so meteorology. Amazing. So I, do you know the story about how I fell in love with the weather? How did you fall in love so with the weather? So I was 14 and uh, my geography, so I always loved science. I've always been quite a sciencey mm. girl. And my geography teacher said, right, we're going to be doing a topic on the weather. We're going to learn about the jet stream. And he said, I want the girls to line up in a straight line and next to you, the boys to line up in a straight line. And I want you to run to the other side of the classroom, but pushing into each other and see what happens. By the time we got to the other side of the classroom, we were all in a wiggly line. We weren't straight anymore. And he said, that is the jet stream. It's warm air from the um, equator pushing up. It's cold air from the Arctic pushing south. And it's this battle zone between the two pushing up and down that makes weather fronts, that makes weather patterns across the UK. And that's why our weather's so changeable. And that moment at 14, I said, I want to be a weather forecaster. <laughs> and I phoned the Met Office that day and said, what do I do? What GCSEs, what A-levels and what degree? And so then my path was set. Goodness me. I had no idea what I wanted to do to study or to be, and I'm not sure I know now. <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> There's still time, which is fine. But um, And I think the weather is such a topic of conversation. Every single day we get up and I look out and think, what's the weather going to be today? And on the news, first thing in the morning, that's what I want to know. <laughs> I think there's a line in Downton Abbey about 
people, I think Violet and Cora are discussing about talking about the weather and Cora wonders the history of this country which defines us as who we are and Violet of course replies I think we need to blame the weather <laughs> that makes us who we are always blame the weather so it's back to that and the uncertainty every event here is defined by what might the weather be like whether it's an easter egg hunt which you must come to or um, an event in the summer whether it's concerts or anything else yeah. what's the weather going to be I got like? married on Friday the 13th even I couldn't sort the weather out that day it rained <laughs> <laughs> that's supposed to be lucky though yeah I know they it say is. it's lucky and people often say I have a barbecue coming up is the weather going to be nice or I have a party coming up which day should I choose this weekend and I say to people you get one request a year use it wisely and sometimes they'll go away and then come back with a different day I don't have that power (laughs) just saying now I actually can't can't give you your one day of weather I couldn't do it for myself (laughs) but I think you're between a physicist and a seer trying to be both sides of it so you spent three years studying all the weather patterns and then I gather you went to the Met office as the next and the first stage in your career yes so then my very first thing to do when I qualified when I passed university was to become a meteorologist so I had my degree in physics and meteorology which was great and then you can go into all different routes but for me I wanted to look at the skies so I went to RAF Bryce Norton which is also not too far from it here isn't. and I had a house in Swindon which isn't too far from here and one of my friends was at Benson which is Wow, not, not far. too far from And you. then the other one was at Lynham, which is obviously <laughs> now a closed RAF base. So we all had different aircraft doing different sorties, and mine at Bryce were the crew that flew troops and cargo all over the world. So they fly to Canada, they would fly to Ascension and then to the Falklands, they'd fly to Cyprus and to Iraq and to Basra. So the very first job I had with the Met Office was learning about world weather and learning about heat stress indexes and learning about sandstorms and humidities that aircraft can take off. So it was all about the severe side of weather and weather forecasting, cloud bases, visibilities, and then also uh, a place next to Oxford, Western on the Green, where they do parachute jumping. So very small scale, detailed weather forecasts. So I learned so much in a really short space of time, but I absolutely loved it. And how did you step forward into presenting for television channels? (laughs) So I said I would never present on TV. I said I never wanted to be on telly. Never wanted to be a weather girl? No, never. (laughs) Because that's what people say. You're a girl doing meteorology. Well, surely you're going to be a weather girl. And I was thinking, I didn't study physics. One of the hardest things you can study to just stand at a screen and point and, you know, look pretty. But then there was a job going. So the Met Office had forecasters at RAF bases, army bases, places like Heathrow Airport, and also at the BBC Weather Centre. And there was a job for a lady, lots of the ladies that gone off to have babies. And my boss said, look, never say never. Just give it a go. Go, see what it's all about. See if you can just learn extra skills. You know, it's never. It's really important to always learn something new. Yeah. So I thought, okay, fine, I will. And actually... I was annoyed with myself for loving it so much. I got to sit on the forecaster bench and be in charge of the output with the producers and talk to all the regions so that the information given by everybody is consistent. That's the most important thing. Then when people watch the weather, they need to be able to change channels and change regions and still have the same message. Did you know I just look at different reports on Google to you see find the one that the one you wanted want. to be? <laughs> anyway, okay, so and that's what people do. Trying to stop me We're doing trying to make that. it just for one <laughs> forecast. And then um, thinking about the BBC audience, it was everything from Radio One, very very young audience, to Radio Four, an older audience, where you did the shipping forecast, which is the pinnacle of I love radio. That. I listened to it. Do I'm you want afraid. a blast? <laughs> 
It's now time for the shipping forecast issued at 0505 on Thursday, the 6th of September 2016. There are warnings of gales in Viking, North at Zira, South at Zira, Cromarty's Fourth, Tyne and Dogger. <laughs> <laughs> but I work my way around the country. Yeah. I, le- I learn a lot from it. And so the funny thing about the shipping forecast is it's meant to be for people who are going out on boats. But people right across the country, even in land, used to listen to it. Yeah. And it was nine minutes long exactly. You had to mark your scripts up. It was the last thing you did on a night shift. It was the most challenging but the most exciting thing that you did, working with you know the continuity analysis and Radio mm. 4, who are the best in the business. And as soon as you finished, if you finished on zero, you felt like a rock star and a superhero. So so I got to do that. And then you had on online, interactive, BBC World. You had the British Forces Broadcasting. You had mm. BBC at one o'clock news. 6 o'clock news 10 o'clock news so as soon as I got there I just thought I was so silly to be so disillusioned to the fact that they turn up have a bit of hair makeup point at a screen and leave it was so much more involved than mm. I thought and um and I stayed for five years and loved it so it just happened which was amazing how extraordinary yes I I think there is a huge amount to it and i I know I love that shipping forecast. I don't know why. <laughs> I think it's because I feel safe at Verdon. But I grew up, um, much of my time was in Cornwall as children. And you were very well aware of the sea because mm. you heard it at night. And you were very much aware of the fishermen going out for whom all information was absolutely vital and a matter of life and death. Yeah, and Cornwall's so. like a, it's a microclimate. It's just so much sunnier, warmer than the rest of the UK. And, and the, the plants that grow yeah, there are amazing. They are simply amazing. And then from that, moving on from your career as a meteorologist, which I could go on about, I do want to bring up your book because um, I picked it up and I thought what I I think we're all faced with in the world is the fact of climate change. Mm. And I hope that more people now are accepting it exists and we are reacting to it somewhat behind the curve, Mm -hmm. but we nevertheless need to react to it quite quickly. And to make a move on it. And all of us wonder, what can we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and your book makes so many suggestions. So, I mean, to start with, I mean, you define that we contribute to the problems of our climate through travel, mm-hmm. through our houses, mm-hmm. through what we eat. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were the three main um, divisions that I saw of everyday life. Is yeah. there another one that I've missed? That no, probably but those is- three are 75% of all of our emissions. So and three quarters, that's So that's really three quarters of yeah. it. And in terms of the house, what made me laugh was the fact that obviously you can turn the lights off, mm-hmm. which helps. And I've got, <laughs> um, I've got LEDs that makes throughout the castle yeah. because it draws 6% instead of, you know, 60 watts. It draws so much less. So I'm saving a huge amount. But also I remember from childhood, I'm one of six girls. Oh, wow. And my father, our father used to come in. And even if we're in the blooming room, he'd turn the lights off. So there'd be squawks <laughs> from us as we're trying to put lipstick or mascara <laughs> on. And suddenly you're pinged into darkness. Yes. Because he was saving electricity. And Geordie's grandfather used to, after supper, turn all the lights off in this castle to save money. No. This was in the 50s. Amazing. And then the butler used to appear with a silver tray full of torches so you could find your way to bed which is completely oh my goodness if my husband is listening to this you're giving him all kinds of ideas <laughs> seriously but it's just again some of what how I was brought up I yeah. suppose in windy houses mm-hmm. in Cornwall um and a father who was conscious of our electric 
bills and our telephone bills and our heating bills, which was minimal. Yeah. And, you know, we had hot water bottles instead of central heating. In some ways, it's going back to some of those thoroughly sensible yes. protocols to live today. And I, I mean, over to you, but I, I can't... You had so many sensible suggestions about how to live and save money through living better in our homes. So yeah. do you want to share some of your... Well, I think everything you said there is correct and it makes so much sense. And I think the big thing is, and I'll kind of go backwards and forwards because yes. I, that's me. Um, last year, I went on a trip to Svalbard. It's a tiny island, a little archipelago, north of Norway, between Norway and the North Pole. We went to look at climate change there. It's warming faster than anywhere else on planet Earth. Uh, nearly six times faster so because of that the effects are so much more dramatic than yes. anywhere else so I went and I met this lovely guide and he'd arrived 40 years ago and I turned 40 when I was there and so he took me to a rocky bit of land near nothing and I could see the sea and he said where I'm standing now with you is where the glacier used to end he said look up the hill and we looked up the hill over half a mile we could barely see the end of the glacier he said that's how far it's retreated in my lifetime in the 40 years he'd been there and I thought gosh that's crazy and he said look up and it was 10 meters above our heads as well all the way up so that whole volume of ice had gone and lost to the sea and that happened to every glacier for the whole of Svalbard pretty much across the whole of the Arctic we then spent, spoke to another tour guide who said that there was an ice fjord there and the ice fjord um, doesn't freeze over anymore in the winter and one year in 2017 he had to just phone all of his customers and say we can't go sledging, we can't go snowmobiling, we can't go out on the ice. There is no ice. And he had no business for two years and he had to come up with a, a new plan of action. And then we found out that the polar bears are dying in droves because mm. the waters around there should be Arctic waters, but it's warming and now Atlantic water's coming up and Atlantic water and Arctic water, different properties, different fish. So they haven't got the fish they need, they're trying to swim further, they haven't got enough energy, they're dying. And then we found out that it rains more than snows and reindeer can scoop through the snow and get all their food they want. But when it rains, it freezes and they can't break through the ice. So they're dying. So my point was, I went there that just as I was writing the book, knowing, you know, knowing that we, I think, like you said, we all realise climate change is happening. We don't need to explain that really much anymore. And yes, it's because we overheating our planet is wrapped in a blanket of pollution, it's heating. And I thought I knew the science. We discussed whether we should go. Should I fly on a plane with emissions to somewhere far away? I know the science. I've read the cryosphere reports. But I went and saw it with my eyes and I felt it with my heart. I saw the landscape changing. I saw people's lives and the tourism changing. I saw what's happening to the wildlife. And I left actually feeling really traumatized because they hardly admit anything and what happens in the Arctic affects the ice and the ice melting affects the jet stream and then that affects weather patterns across the UK and across Europe. It makes us more likely to have heat waves and extremes. Even though the Arctic feels so far away, it actually, the impacts are so close to home. So um, that kind of was a real turning point for me to say, I have to do something. I have a daughter who's five. I actually missed her first day and her first whole week at school to go on this trip. That's how important it was for me. And I explained that to her. And she drew a little note for me to take to the polar bears to say, I'm sorry that we're heating our planet and you're losing your ice. And I just thought, I want her to visit when she's my age and I want the glaciers to still be there. That the rate we're heading, there'll be no glaciers or polar bears or no reindeer. And actually that's really upsetting. So I, I want to say to her, 
we did everything we could to protect everything that we have now and I think that's the thing that people want to know what can I do and will it make a difference and so that's why we did the book and it was like lots and yes and like you said you know heating our homes how we travel what we eat are the 75% of the emissions but all of those we can save money I don't think I realized until I started researching you know it's really obvious that people waste food but do we really think about how much food we waste all of the food that we waste every year is 10% of all the world's emissions. Flying is 2.5% of the world's emissions. So four times everyone's flying is food that we just throw away. And that costs us money. That is something that we could think about and do for free. On average, we throw away around about six meals in the UK every week. We could think about freezing those meals, just buy what you need, planning your meals. How often do you go to the fridge and think, oh, I've got no food or I need to get something out of the freezer or, you know, planning your meals is really important. And then also any food scraps that you have, and for us it's, you know, eggshells and uh, peelings and all of those sort of things, don't put them in the bin. It, it feels like that's an obvious thing to do. And I think lots of councils are starting to provide food waste bins. As some people think it's not very clean, but they get taken away every week. Um, if you put food into a bin, it produces methane. And methane is 30 times more warming than carbon dioxide. It's so much worse. But if you put it into your food waste bin, it gets turned into compost and it can be reused again. So food waste for me, I didn't have a food waste bin, was the easiest thing to tackle. So now we now uh, recycle all of our food, turn it into compost, and then we have no scraps. And people think they have no scraps. Like we have no scraps and we use all of our food and we started having veg boxes as well. We realized that we ate a lot of meat. So now I eat no red meat. I only eat chicken and fish. Some people say, shouldn't you be vegan if you really, really cared about the planet? But I think you have to make choices and you know you have to do well, what you can. Well, the thing about that is we're a farm here. Yeah. I've, I've written a book to tackle climate change from a different point of view called Seasons That I Clear, looking about how we eat, how mm-hmm. we can grow well garden well and cook well mm. and cooking from scratch using what we have in front of us mm-hmm. and part of that is we have um, 1800 sheep here How amazing and 60 rams but they're fertilizing the park they graze over stubble turnips which we then plant with spring barley so you can either the fertilizer which otherwise we need to grow the crops such yeah. as the wheat which you eat if you're vegan vegetarian or eat meat um, needs fertilizer, which comes from the chemical process business, as the offshoots, obviously, as you know. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, by keeping animals naturally, you help fertilize it. What I disagree with is keeping animals penned up in great big indoor houses, which happens. So it's it's a factory, not a farm. Mm-hmm. So it's about farms, not factories. It's about interrelated growing. And there's been a farm here for, well, obviously a thousand years or more <laughs> and we're just trying to do it well in that kind of fashion so we've always eaten a lot of vegetables and crops but we eat some meat mm-hmm. but every so often because actually it's more expensive yeah so it's a treat which i think is kind of where it used to be yes which is a heck of a lot better than just eating processed meats the whole time yeah and that's that's another thing it's the health benefits as it well is. isn't it and i think yes less meat more vegetables i think the savings for the nhs is millions of pounds every year for your cardiovascular diseases yes and if you have more meat and you have better quality meat and less veg- more vegetables then the price is way out so it doesn't cost you any more money no, so it doesn't and you know it's i thoroughly enjoy it. and again 
because I'm one of six girls, my mother always had a meal, you know, plan of what we were eating. Oh, she's a superstar. <laughs> so that it was sorted. And also I, as a working mum, I've got a couple of stepchildren as well as my son. And when I was working, I needed to have a plan of what we were going to eat and that actually is such a help so you know it's spaghetti bolognese on one day yeah. or it's you know it's a fish pie on another day mm-hmm. and you've got the the main meal running through mm-hmm. and then around that you can build the balance yeah and you have your and chicken just, and the next day your chicken curry i do and then i have my potato and then my rice and then my <laughs> pasta and or the couscous or whatever else i'm doing and and that's i think a if you plan it's much it's much less expensive. Oh, yeah. And it's actually possible. And we have a... And funny enough, one of the positive things from COVID for Highclere in terms of offering food is that often with the tours, we offer food. We include it because cooking food is the heart of any home. Yes. But because you can't... You couldn't choose what you wanted, we prepare a plate of food per person with a choice of, of different things on it. So there's no wastage. Yes. So yes. there's nothing left over. That's a much so instead of idea. choosing the food, it's there. So so it's extraordinary. So all of us in the estate office, the castle office, used to have quite rich pickings <laughs> when everyone had gone. And now there's nothing. <laughs> there wasn't even anymore. any soup left over for me the other day. It all gone. But that's kind of makes me feel real good because there's nothing left over. So yeah. I'm sure there are sensible things, but part of it was turning the heating down, yeah. which you and your husband are clearly very keen on. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> so I mean, half of the reason to write the book was just to tell people how tight my husband was. And I wrote the entire book and at the, at the very end did he find this out because I said to him, oh, you're in my thank yous. And it says, you're the loveliest person on the planet, but the tightest person as well. And do you know what he said? not the loveliest person on the planet (laughs) (laughs) he wasn't so bothered about the titles I mean he is so so many things that we already did turn you know all of our light bulbs are changed we turn everything off at the wall every single night only plugs are on that need to be absolutely to be on we've always been really careful with our food and um, (laughs) but the heating is the big one he won't allow our heating over 20 degrees celsius and if it's over it he actually gets quite cross and when we leave the house the thermostat just gets turned down to say 14 so technically it's off so you come into a freezing cold house and it takes a while for everything to heat back up again and we had a friend visiting once that we all arrived friend went into the living room we went to the kitchen to make our drinks and we went back into the living room and he was doing star jumps (laughs) to warm up and at that point, I said to Dean, look, this is how cold our house is, okay? So so our heating sits at around about 18 when it's needed, not very often. And actually, it is a bit of a joke, but it, right now, with the cost of energy, it is our energy bills are much higher, but it's saving us a lot of money. And if you just lower your thermostat by one degree, that's 10% saving on your energy bills. So that's huge. And it's just a tiny thing huge. to do. And all those things like closing your curtains in the evening... When the sun sets, keeping the heat in that you've paid for during the day. We've insulated all of our walls. We've insulated our roof. I had to go up in like ski gear, goggles and gloves the other day to put another bit of um, foam on the top of the, yeah. my daughter's bedroom uh, to make sure it was warm. Uh, we've got those blackout blinds and actually we are getting new windows fitted next month. So practice what I preach. Um, so yeah, I think that 25% of your heat escapes through the walls, 25% through the roof and 25% through um, your ceilings. And actually the cost that it would be for us to do our windows would have repaid itself within about two years now with the cost of 
the energy bills. So mm. it costs money, but then again, you will save money. And this is the big thing. It costs, but then you save. I completely agree. And we, you know, I we rent out cottages here. And the first thing is that I work on is all the insulation to make sure it's really thick insulation, which mm-hmm. helps. We can't always insulate the walls because they're, they're listed or old houses. Mm-hmm. And then I work my way around the windows. I play Monopoly with the windows. <laughs> and But when they're double glazed, it makes a huge difference. And some of the cottages where I then put interlined curtains, which actually I'm buying off eBay. Can I say that? I'm you just did. Them off eBay. You just did. And then um, <laughs> redoing them and but and just lengthening them. But yeah. And then, you know, painting around it. But if you have good curtains... Mm-hmm. And you have, um, you know, it's well insulated in the daytime. It works well in the daytime. Yeah. Then it's okay at night. And then I have happy tenants who never leave. Some of our tenants have been here for like 20 years. Amazing. And they're such amazing people. And, and you know, we haven't found all the answers in terms of, you know, um, heat exchange um Boiler system, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's the new heating air systems, heat pumps, yeah. they don't always work in every way. But whenever no. I'm putting something in, I'm trying to look at what can be adapted to whatever's going to mm-hmm. be coming online. So I think that's the best way to go forward. But in the meantime, people need to stay yeah. warm, and I'm putting it in, so I need to be able to afford to put things in. But, <laughs> but I and people are going to use it less, yeah, because it's expensive. Mm. So, in some ways, we are, I think using less resource Mm -hmm. and less electricity and less food as all those prices have skyrocketed and exactly as you said i think the whole thing i realized about the whole book and everything your whole way of life and it blew my mind at first is they used to be used to be reduce reuse recycle i might need to consult my book but there's now seven steps and the first thing is just to rethink everything you do everything you buy whether it's a holiday whether it's a car whether it's a new item of clothing I need a new phone cover um, Mm. can it be bought in a green way Mm. is it made of recycled products you know there's there's a way to rethink the way we do everything and then the next step feels like a really weird one it's refuse so I don't um, drink hot drinks but if we're ever on location in the weather and it's really cold in the morning I might have a cup of tea just to keep warm but if I haven't taken my reusable cup I will just point blank refuse to have a takeaway cup. Yes, they might say it can be composted or recycled, but that still takes energy. And we need to be in a world of a circular economy. You have something, you wash it, you use it again, and it's just purchased one time and it will never go into a landfill. And that's your recyclable, you know, reusable thing. that's what used to happen. This is all so new, this (laughs) takeaway economy. And everyone used to sit down to eat together, just like in Downton Abbey, not walk on the hoofs. If you're not sitting at a table, should you be eating or drinking? So I think it's kind of things like that. I thought travel was interesting. And I find that I think, again, because of COVID Mm -hmm. and going to the supermarket was such a palaver that I definitely go far less. Yes. And again, with spiralling costs, it's do I actually need it? Yeah. And when my trousers have got a hole in, I'll probably buy it <laughs> But other than that, I'm because you were making the point about we wear um, 20% of our wardrobe and 80% stays yes. at the back. Yes, And I think I've got a lot of wardrobe to work through. So. And that's the thing, isn't it? Um, we did, I'm trying to buy no new clothes because I realise I can just shop in my wardrobe or yeah. I can buy secondhand clothes so that it's new yeah. to me, but they're not new. 
And I've realized it's not that difficult because I have lots of clothes and lots of shoes I've had for a really long time in my wardrobe that I hardly wear. So, and the fashion industry is another one of those big chunks. 10% of the world's emissions are from fashion. So you're better off buying fewer really beautiful products that are really nicely made with lovely fabrics that will last so much longer than lots and lots of fast fashion, which will fall apart and go out of fashion. I completely understand that, but having said that, I think many and many of the people in poorer parts of the world have earned their money and their livelihood by making throwaway fashionable garments or better made fashion garments. So again, I think there needs to be a rethink in yeah. turning their attention to to planting trees and turning their countries Ooh. into conservation and making it fair and fair pay and and that's the thing you that's the thing you don't want to stop buying everything so nobody mm. has a job but if everything was fair and everyone was paid better then it would all be distributed out evenly and that's we you know there's these pillars of society that we can if we tackle climate change if we tackle poverty if we tackle educating young women if we tackle looking after water resources all of these things are interlinked so if we can educate women so they can go out and get jobs and look after their families and then become farmers and then have a fewer children and then the women don't get married as young and then that continues in this um, positive spiral of being more empowered and then they can have solar panels and they can have wind turbines and not rely on fossil fuels this all um, produces a lower population and lower carbon footprint as well yes and I think it has the point that I suppose I've made to those people who don't aren't so keen on believing in climate change is that I think the climate of this world has never changed so fast as it has in Mm -hmm. the last hundred years Mm -hmm. and that's what the animals, the wildlife. Mm. I think you said that um, one out of eight million um, of the wildlife of eight million different breeds or, or genetics, one million are now under threat. Yes, of extinction. Of extinction. Which is terrifying, yes. Which is huge. And part of that is because of where we build our houses and it blocks paths for them to get from one area they live to another to be able to populate themselves so we're cutting off those paths um, another is them the changing the temperature the changing in the water and them having to migrate to other places and not having the the areas that they need to be able to thrive so yeah and then all of that will lead to them getting closer to human populations which means they're more likely to bring diseases which means we're much more likely to have more, more zoonosis and more pandemics yeah I know. <laughs> your, I think your facts about the sea were quite scary to me as well because I, I hadn't probably con- contemplated how big a sink of carbon dioxide the sea was. Yes. But if it warms up, it's less efficient, which is far more worrying, and it's also full of our plastic. Yeah, exactly. So 70% of the Earth's surface is ocean, and it's. I guess it's obvious when you think about it, looking at the globe and how much water there is, particularly the large expanse between the UK and the United States. But the oceans absorb... 90% of the heat that we produce. So we have a lot to thank the oceans for. Otherwise, the atmosphere would be so much hotter, but they're slowly starting to be able to store that heat a little bit less efficiently, not quite storing as much, which means they'll soon be at capacity and not be able to store it. They also absorb loads of carbon dioxide, and mm-hmm. soon, the warmer they get, they won't be able to absorb as much carbon dioxide. And then they change their acidity, which is affecting marine life and also affecting things like the... Um, corals and we talk about how we want to limit our warming to one and a half degrees what does that even mean why does why does one and a half degrees matter so this is something i 
And that's about a little while ago, I, I saw a TED talk and I found it really fascinating. And they were saying that the earth is warmed by just over one degree. And you think one degree, that's not much. You know, the temperature in the UK yesterday went from like minus five to plus 15. That's 20 degrees change. So why does one degree matter? But it's the average temperature for the whole planet, for the whole year, just given one figure. So it's risen by over a degree since the Industrial Revolution. And like you say, it's how rapidly it's warmed. But if we, as a human, warmed by one degree, go from 37 to 38, we start to feel quite unwell. And we would need to rest, take some medicine to recuperate. And Earth can't rest and we aren't giving it the medicine. But if we try to limit our warming to, say, one and a half or two degrees, that's what we want to aim for, at the moment we're on track for three degrees of warming, if we warmed three degrees to 40 degrees Celsius, we would be on our deathbed. We would be gravely ill. We would have to go to hospital. We'd have to have medical intervention. And I think that's where I see the, that's where we are with the planet now. We're the doctors. It can't rest, but we can give it the medicine it needs and to help to alleviate some of that pressure, to stop it warming to the one and a half, two, three degrees. And with coral, one and a half degrees of warming mean we lose 70%. Two degrees of warming means we lose 99%. So that's why every tiny bit of warming matters because every tiny bit more, it's more cataclysmic. Which is very sobering, isn't it? Yeah. That is. And yeah, I, I look back and we, you know, we criticise our predecessors for what they've done <laughs> to each other or to the world. But I think otherwise our successors are going to look back and think, you've missed the boat. Yeah. Because we should be acting now. So that's in a sense why having absorbed all that you've said, and there are some frightening statistics as well, which are important to understand. But what you do give me when I read your book is you give me hope Good. that I can do small things <laughs> yeah. or continue to turn the lights off, preferably yeah. when someone's in the room, to, to, to save a little bit of electricity here. And if we all made these small adjustments, yeah. it would make the most enormous difference and I also think the politics needs to step aside from mm. it because it is a global emergency not a political emergency mm. and just to correct because I know for example one of the problems is soy and the plantations of soy in places like Brazil mm -hmm. and the soy then both feeds us in soya milk yeah and the cattle in America, mm -hmm. and that's what's cutting down much of the Amazon. Yeah, and palm so oil is similar. If, and the similar thing with those two particular aspects, which are in so much of our mm. ingredients today. But if you don't buy processed food, do? <laughs> yeah. if you don't buy processed food, yeah. then you don't have palm oil mm -hmm. in it. And if you don't buy some of the fast food, which needs the soy-based meat, you then have less need for it, so mm -hmm. less need to cut it down. So, we have all got to change our behaviour just a little. Exactly. And all and that will make you healthier because the alternate options of eating are so much healthier. And that and that's exactly it. It's you know, I'm not here to say you should never travel on a plane, you should never eat meat and you should not hit your home or have a car. We you know, the UK is so diverse and amazing and wonderful because people have travelled, but yeah. travel less. You maybe travel once a year, travel economy. We have one car and um this evening my husband's having to take my daughter on a bike to drama because I have the car. You know, we have to to kind of make sure that you just make those little bit of effort to make changes. But I think the big thing for me is I started making little changes 
and the more smaller changes I made, the medium changes I would make. And now I feel like I'm on this medium stage where I'm ready to start to make the bigger changes. So next time we get a new heating system, it will be an air source heat pump. Our car's just passed its MOT, but if it hadn't, we said that we would be buying an electric car. I'm not going to get rid of my diesel car, even though diesel is bad, just because electric would be better, because it took a footprint of carbon to make that car. Precisely. You keep things until they're on their deathbed, fix, 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 and when they're gone, they're gone and then you buy a greener option and I think that's really important don't just get something because it, you should I emptied all of my wardrobe of all of those tiny little shampoo bottles that are so exciting to get from when you go to hotels I don't even know why and I will never ever collect a miniature bottle ever again and now I have shampoo bars and shampoo bottles and my bathroom is completely plastic free and um and that was a big step it took a while to get there um 40 percent of the rubbish in landfill is just plastic from our bathrooms that probably we could recycle we are terrible at recycling so um, I have like a little diagram in different sections of my book saying just first of all just recycle what you have and you know make sure you do that first of all but you know we shouldn't even be just recycling we should be like I said in the circular economy but some things are unavoidable but actually at my daughter's school they're becoming a green school and um, there's this great company called TerraCycle who recycle things that can't be recycled. So we have our curbside recycling that take all of the big things that's cost effective to recycle, but crisp packets, bread bags, sweet wrappers, they can't be recycled. But this company called TerraCycle will take them and recycle them and turn them into new products. So my school are getting new bins for all those things and I have millions of bags in my garage full of all different things that curbside recycling won't recycle but I can take to school or take to different shops or different supermarkets and stop going from land into landfill. So, you know, that's millions and millions of products every year that aren't going to landfill. So that's, you know, a big deal. It is a big deal. Laura, thank you so much. I hope I will... I am a little bit on the way. You're very much on your <laughs> way. What you're doing. <laughs> but, um, and, and it does matter enormously here. We're a farm and I'm proud of it. We try to recycle, reuse, cook from scratch, cook within the seasons um, and um, be very careful with the resources. Mm. And I think the word sustainable, somebody said to me the other day that they were trying to, um, they wanted to live sustainably. And it's not just about us living mm. sustainably. It's about wildlife and nature. It's providing a, an environment where they can actually survive mm. because that is what is so key now. And going around here, quietly walking or going on horseback, <laughs> you can find so much and so much beauty. But anyway, I could talk to you for hours. I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm going to stop and just say thank you so, so much for joining me here today at High Clear. I hope there'll be other opportunities which we can share in forums or gathering people together because I'm sure it's going to be the top of so many people's agendas. So good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you so much. And yeah, I would love to hear all of the little changes that people are making that they pass on to another friend and another friend. But the biggest thing to tackle climate change Let's talk about it. So we're talking about it and I hope people continue to that conversation. And then do. I like people doing too. Yes. Do too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Laura. Hello, this is Lady Carnarvon. And just to say, please do subscribe to this podcast. Then you can be first on the list every time it comes out.